Well, in 1968, the country music world received and celebrated a new song. And this song was a hit on the pop charts. And I won't break your heart with the lyrics, but the title is simple. D-I-V-O-R-C-E. And as the culture of the 60s was breaking free from the traditional values of the pre-50s generation, popular culture like television and radio was representing and and promoting these non-traditional values like the celebration of divorce and further encouraging the rejection of the truth found in God's Word. But that's what natural man does. Isn't that, isn't that what the natural man does? The world justifies itself by being loud and celebrating its sin. Singing of divorce, desiring to be inclusive and love those who are in sin. We see that theme continue today. We, we see that especially in the current transgender movement. We see speaking lies and requiring others to agree with those lies, further promoting lies. And so we see the same types of things happening today that were happening in the late 60s. Divorce being promoted and celebrated. Just sing it out and sing it loud and all will be okay. But we know that divorce isn't new. We know that the religious leaders in the Old Testament were dealing with it as well, and they weren't living they weren't dealing with it just in the lives of their people. They were actually dealing with it in their own lives. So how were they dealing with it? Well, I arrive at this place tonight because the last time I stood here, we dealt with the first portion of Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 14. We, we dealt with the, uh, with the parable of the wicked steward. And Jesus taught us that man cannot serve God and earthly mammon. And in response to that, the Pharisees derided him. They ridiculed and they mocked Jesus because he said that. And so we come to verses 15 through 18. Jesus turns aside. He squarely rebukes the Pharisees with really very few words. And then he turns back and addresses the people in parables again. Seamlessly turning aside and rebuking these Pharisees. And so tonight it's my intention to pick up here and to deal with this rebuke of Jesus toward the Pharisees. So as Jesus rebukes them, what is the main reason? Well, the main reason is they justify themselves before men. And the illustration that Jesus gives of their self-justification is divorce. But before we read this text, I must say that divorce is not the only sin that evidences self-justification. Self-justification shows itself in any and all 
sin. And so it is simply that Jesus points to the Pharisees and he points to their self-justification by pointing out their treatment of marriage. You see, the hearts of the Pharisees were actually given to adultery. And they justified their adultery by twisting the law and living in and dealing with divorce the way that they do. And so Jesus did not waste any words. He didn't speak needlessly. He spoke wisely. He spoke perfectly. He did not waste his breath. He was intentional as he spoke to the disciples. He was intentional as he spoke to the tax collectors. And here he is intentional as he speaks to the Pharisees. And when he rebukes the disciples or the tax collectors or the Pharisees, it is intentional. His rebuke of the Pharisees here in these verses, 15 through 14, I mean 15 through 18, is a continuation of the same rebuke that he's been giving in Luke so far. It's a rebuke against worldly thinking. So let's read together. I'm going to begin at verse 14. Remember again that we're coming out of the parable of the wicked steward. Jesus has has taught now that man cannot serve God and serve mammon, earthly mammon. And so we'll pick up at 14. Now the Pharisees who were lovers of money also heard all these things, and they derided him. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts. For what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we are thankful tonight that you are pleased to give us your word. And tonight, I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us, grant us understanding. And if there are places in our own lives where we are wrong before you, especially in this area of our marriages, especially in this area of self-justification, won't you be pleased to reveal it to us? to cause us to beg for your forgiveness and establish us further in your righteousness, I pray. I would also ask that any who are here who are not trusting in the Lord Jesus, that even tonight would be the night that their hearts and consciences would be pricked to the point that they would cry out to the Lord Jesus for forgiveness. I pray that they would trust in Him this evening. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So we look first at what Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 15. And tonight, I guess I should start by saying that my goal is just to work through the verses, to pull in other sections of Scripture, so I'll be moving around a little bit and you're more than welcome to go with me. But I'm going to start at verse 15. 
Jesus says to the Pharisees that you are those who justify yourselves before men. So I'm going to look at Matthew 19 for a more detailed interaction. But before I go there, I want to to read to you the section of Scripture that the Pharisees are standing on. They're standing in Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. This is the law given to them from Moses, and so considered to be the word of Moses and referenced as the word of Moses as we go on through this evening. I'm going to read to you Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house... When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies, who took her as his wife, then her former husband, who divorced her, must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So the Pharisees and their interpretation of this passage is at the root of the rebuke from Jesus. So in Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come to Jesus... And they say, testing him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? I think we need to ask ourselves, why would they ask this question? Why would they ask it in this manner? It already tells us that they're trying to trying to test Jesus, but but when we hear that question phrased in that way, I think we could probably all say that we've done that same sort of thing to some degree or another, and so we can recognize it. We all at some point have leaned on passages of the Bible for some sort of comfort when maybe that comfort wasn't meant for us. Maybe we needed to be rebuked, but we ignore the rebuke and we look for something else instead to pacify our consciences. Or we turn to the Word of God in order to figure out what we can get away with. Maybe that's not your problem. Maybe you've never dealt with that. But maybe you have. So I think that most of us, if not all of us, can understand this view. They're coming to Jesus and they're saying, we've already decided what we can get away with. Are you going to agree with us or not? And so our hearts, and their hearts in this case, are revealing the truth. But Jesus responds to them, verses 3 through 6. He says, Have you not read? In the beginning he created them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together... Let not man separate. 
The, the Pharisees respond by showing us their interpretation of the Scripture in, in, verse 19, um, in verse 7. Again, I'm in Matthew 19, verse 7. The Pharisees say, Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and put her away? If all of what you just said is true, then why did Moses command that we give a certificate of divorce and put her away? And so Jesus corrects their wrong thinking and their wrong interpretation with his answer. He says, Moses permitted, not commanded, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives because of the hardness of your hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. And Jesus goes on, And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Jesus corrects the Pharisees. Moses did not command divorce, as we saw in Matthew 19. The point of the command in Deuteronomy 24 is that the divorced wife was not to return to her original husband after having a second husband. Because ultimately, Deuteronomy 24 gives the reason for divorce as uncleanness. And sin. So the Pharisees had developed a personal interpretation of the law, thinking only of what they wanted right now. They were deciding what the law means. So in Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, the Pharisees say Moses commanded, Jesus says Moses permitted. And the reason there's such a problem here, such a rub between the two, is that the Pharisees have this personal interpretation which turned all of the ifs and whens into do's. But it's kind of funny to me, humorous maybe, because they don't do that all the time. They only do it when it's convenient. Deuteronomy 23 verse 25 the verse right before the verse about divorce says this, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. Now, isn't it interesting that the Pharisees don't change that may into a must? They didn't say, when you enter into your neighbor's field, you must pick some of the grains by your hand, but don't use a sickle. If they had done that, then they couldn't have rebuked Jesus and the disciples for feeding themselves on the Sabbath day. How convenient. How convenient this self-justification is. The Pharisees are guilty of a personal interpretation. And personal interpretation of the law always self-justifies. It always lifts us up while condemning everyone else. But God sees and judges the heart. So let's go back to Luke 16. We're back to our original passage now. We're back to verse 15. God sees and judges the hearts. The Pharisees were holding a position of honor. They were holding knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. They were puffed up and proud, but why were they puffed up and proud? Have you ever wondered that? 
Have you ever wondered why the Pharisees are always so confident, so puffed up and proud? I think the answer is really simple. Because they were able to interpret the law and condemn and justify. They had established themselves as the interpreters of the law, and therefore they could condemn and they could justify. They reinterpret the law of God so that they can meet it. And they interpret the law so that they can be the judge. So who did they condemn? Well, they were very good at condemning tax collectors and Gentiles and Samaritans and ultimately Jesus. But who did they justify? They always justified themselves and their own actions. The Pharisees were justifying themselves before men, but God sees the heart as Jesus shows us in verse 16, where Jesus says, the law and the prophets, the law and the prophets, that's the basis for all of the self-justification that the Pharisees have, the law and the prophets. Jesus says the law and the prophets were until John Since then, since the time of John, the kingdom has been preached with great results. Everyone is pressing into the kingdom as a result of this preaching. Hearts are being changed. Now I want to draw that, I want to draw that contrast for you. I want to make sure that that stands out because we're talking about We're talking to men who are acting different in order to justify themselves before men. They're they're changing the law, they're establishing themselves in their own pride, and they're justifying themselves before men. Jesus says, since John the Baptist, there's been preaching and there's been real change. Men's hearts are being changed. They are pressing in to the kingdom of God. Real conversion Not this made-up self-justification stuff that you guys have got going on. Instead, they are being justified before God and not simply before men. Verse 17, and that law, that law is not passing away. See, it's not passing away. It's easier for the earth and for heaven to pass away. And even though the Pharisees are misinterpreting and perverting the law of God, it does not change. God isn't changing. His law isn't changing. God is the same. His holiness, His requirement for righteousness, His condemnation of sin, His general love for His creation, His perfect love for His own name, they all remain. And so his law remains. It is still in effect. It is not abolished. It is not diminished. And no matter how we may put it or make less of it, it remains. God's law remains. Again, remember that Jesus does not waste his words. This is a very short rebuke in between two very strong, very very heavy parables. He turns and rebukes them so sharply. And that is important for us to remember that he is not wasting his words as we arrive at verse 8. Because verse 8 could seem so out of place, couldn't it? 
He says, he says, you are those who justify yourselves before for men, but God knows your hearts. He's saying the law and the prophets were until John, but now there's preaching and men are really being saved. It's easier for heaven and earth to pass away for than for the law to fail. And then whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her, from her husband commits adultery. And he doesn't explain it at all. He just turns around and goes straight into the next parable. Like, yes, I'm done with you. You know exactly what I mean. I'll be over here. It's mind-blowing. I looked at this and I thought, what is he trying to say? And I think this is what he's saying. Jesus comes to verse 18 and he says, and this is your sin. And just like when the, when the Pharisees wanted to stone the lady caught in adultery, they all one by one drop their stones and walk away. There's nothing they can say. What are they going to do? Try to self-justify? They've already done that. That's what started this whole rebuke. Jesus makes it very clear in verse 18. Here is the sin of your heart, and the sin of your heart is adultery. You desire adultery, and you justify yourselves by taking the law of Moses, which meant something else, and twisting it. Moses commands us. Moses commands us to give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus says, no, Moses permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. And so this self-justification manifests itself in divorce. As Jesus interacted with the Pharisees concerning uh, concerning divorce in Matthew 19, we can also see other examples, Matthew 5 and Mark 10 other places where he interacts with the Pharisees specifically about divorce. And all of these things work together to point us to a right understanding. As Jesus interprets the Old Testament to us, he's giving us a right and a correct understanding of divorce. But what about other places? Well, Isaiah 50 verse 1 Divorce is used as imagery uh, between God and His people. He, he says, where is the certificate of divorce given to your mother? In Jeremiah 3.8, God is the saving God. And He's speaking to His bride. And His bride is Israel and Judah. Both are shown as His, as his wife but they are described as being adulterous. And so, he's crediting them divorce because they've already gone after other gods. 2 Corinthians 11.2, I think is maybe uh, maybe the best positive spin on on this whole deal. Paul is, is jealous for the church, and so he says... I have betrothed you as one who is betrothed to her husband, presenting her a chaste virgin to Christ. This is the ideal, right? This is the ideal picture. The the right marriage of, of the bride and the bridegroom. Not this divorce. So you see permission of divorce under Moses provided an understanding, it provided a picture 
for us of God's holiness. Deuteronomy 24.1 is not the grounds for issuing a certificate of divorce. But it shows us the grounds, which are uncleanness, unholiness, and sin. So the grounds for issuing a certificate of divorce are not a whim. They're not a dislike. Not uh, (laughs) irreconcilable. I can't even say it. They're not a whim. They're not dislike. Irreconcilable differences. There we go. And not even falling out of love. Instead... It was sin. And it was a picture of the preservation of God's holy people through the removal of sin. So this understanding brought me to a very unsettling question. So based on this illustration of divorce, should Christ divorce his bride? And the answer was absolutely. He has every ground for divorce because his bride is continuing in unfaithfulness as we all struggle with sin in our own lives. But God is not like the Pharisees. So we, his bride, we may be wayward, we may be rebellious, we may be holding on to sin, we may be slow to obedience, we may be obstinate or unclean and unholy, but God is not like the Pharisees. God says, husbands, love your wives like I love you. Like the Lord Jesus who gave his life for her, and not while she was faithful, but while she was like Gomer who was content to chase after her own sin and uncleanness. But Jesus, the perfect Hosea, came and purchased her at great price and delivered her from her sin and established her as the mother of children, fruitful and profitable in his home. But again, we are unfaithful. And the Lord Jesus seeks us out again and again and again. But so does Jesus then have grounds for divorcing his wife? And we can say with confidence, that's not his character. That's not who he is. He does not have hardness of heart. And that was the reason that divorce was permitted. Instead, God tells us, Malachi 2.16, that God hates divorce. He says it covers your garments with violence. You see, this divorce, it's a self-justifying business. Often pride is at the root. Because we're unable to humble ourselves to to the biblical requirements of serving our spouse. Which brings us to some application. Divorce. To those who are married, I give you a quote credited to Vince Lombardi. The best defense is a good offense. And so I would recommend intentionality with your spouse. 
First Peter 2 3 says, Wives like sheep, be submissive, submissive to your own husbands, that even if some do not obey the word, they without a word may be won by the conduct of their wives when they observe your chaste conduct accompanied by fear. First Peter 3 7, Husbands likewise dwell with them, that is your wives, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers may not be hindered. These things require intentionality. They don't just, they don't just happen. They require us to intentionally put our spouse above ourselves. And so, and so I'm at the point now where instead of just talking about divorce and the Pharisees, let's switch over to divorce prevention, Right? Let's, let's strengthen our marriages. Let's exemplify the love that Christ has for His church in our homes. I would say to you that our affections follow our actions. And so, if you're struggling with affections towards your spouse, I would suggest that you increase your actions towards your spouse in the positive. First, pray for one another. Give yourselves to one another, serving one another. Consider one another, even if it is one-sided. Above all, pray. Pray for one another. So much of this battle that we have within marriage is in our minds. And so I would offer you 2 Corinthians 10, 3-6. We're walking in the flesh, in this physical world, but we do not war in the flesh. So our marriages, like every other part of our lives, are spiritual. And so we fight and war in and against our minds. And so we need to be casting down arguments that exalt themselves against God. Bringing every thought into captivity to to the obedience of Christ. So don't entertain thoughts of other men Or women, you know, I sure wish my husband was more like whoever else. I wish my husband would do blah, blah, blah the way such and such does. Don't entertain those thoughts. Don't entertain thoughts of being single. Well, if I was single, or back when I was single... Don't entertain those thoughts. Those are not God-honoring. Turn your mind through prayer to God to a God-honoring view of your marriage and then let that move you to service, a move to action. I want to give you this example. I wish I could remember all of the details, but I knew I remember hearing the story of a woman who who was in a in really a terrible marriage. Her husband treated her very poorly. Very self-centered man. Very prideful. And so every time he would do something that hurt her, or, or that angered her, or frustrated her, she would bake his favorite pie. What a, what a crazy thought. I am so angry at him, or I am so hurt by him, that I am going to do a great kindness to him. What, what a marvelous thought. That sounds like, that sounds like a, a, an earthly example of the love of Christ being poured out, does it not? And eventually her husband was won over as a result of her kindness. 
But we must be moved to action in loving our spouse. Passages like 1 Peter and Ephesians, they teach us of marriage. But these are not if statements. Not if your spouse is holy or if your spouse is fulfilling the biblical requirements. These commands are listed directly to you. So do them. It's not dependent on anyone or anything else, so do them. Now, to children, there are a few here, and I'm glad to see that there are a few here. But I'll extend it to say anyone who's still living in your parents' home, so children will be a uh, a wider swath of people here tonight. If you are like I was when I was little, I would fear that my parents may divorce. Divorce is rampant in the world. Maybe you're fearful of that. I would encourage you with the same words that the angels would say when they would come as messengers of God. They would say, fear not. Fear not. Trust in God. I have some secret information for you tonight. Parents will let you down. Parents will fail. Parents won't always get it right. But, in spite of that, you are told to honor your parents. And so, honoring your parents is more than simply doing what they say. Here's my next little secret. Part of honoring your parents is helping to make them look good. How do you do that? Well, you can do that by being well-behaved. You can do that by being respectful to your parents and to other people. But ultimately... I would encourage you that it is about wanting what is best for your parents. And so I would encourage you that that action associated with wanting what is best for your parents means praying for them. And praying for your parents, praying for their marriage, praying for your own home. So do you have a happy home? Do you have brothers and sisters? Do you get along with them? These are all things that you can pray for and work toward. And I would encourage you now, while you're young, to get along with your siblings so that when you're older, you can get along better with them. Some adults are learning that the hard way now. I would turn now in the application of marriage and divorce to those who are single. Matthew 19, 10 and 12, Jesus tells us that there are some who are intended and there are some who give themselves to being single. I would say to you, there is no shame in this. And you should not look down on yourself or let others look down on you if you are single. 1 Corinthians 7, 8, Paul says, But I say to the unmarried and to the widows, it is good for them if they remain even as I am. Singleness can mean single-mindedness unto the Lord. It's an opportunity to exhibit a different type of self-control. It means that you're free to service. You're free to delight yourself in the service of the Lord. And I would encourage you, along with everyone else, not to seek Fulfillment in a spouse. 
I will not claim to know what is best for you or to know what is your uh, long-term reality in the Lord. He may very well have someone He is preparing for you now, but I will say this. Find your contentment in Christ. Be careful not to make an idol of marriage. I say this to the single and to the married, because sometimes married folks are really good at pressing others continuously, constantly pushing those who are single toward marriage, to think about marriage. And so I would encourage you to encourage singles in love and encourage them towards contentment in Christ. He is the greatest husband a single person can ever have, and everyone else is going to let you down. But the Pharisees had a great symptom, and that was divorce. But the root, at the root of it all, was their self-justification. So let's deal with self-justification for a moment. Concerning self-justification, I would say to you what Jesus said in Luke 12.1. Take heed and beware of the, of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There are two things that were in the hearts of the Pharisees. A love of money and an exaltation of self. Love of money, we've already dealt with that in the previous parable. But exaltation of self... This self-justification, Jesus plainly and clearly calls the Pharisees on the carpet for this. So self-justification is simply taking the law of God and twisting it to self-medicate. It's a spiritual ABC store, if you will allow that analogy. Dulling the pain of spiritual realities and reducing ourselves to a religious stupor. Jesus answers the Pharisees with the words of Moses because the Pharisees have convinced themselves that they are acceptable because they are the children of Moses. But in Luke 3, 8, Jesus says, You say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham From these stones. Jesus answers them with the words of Moses. The very law that they are supposed to be teaching, He rebukes them with. And so they are taking the law of God and they are twisting it into something that can be kept. They're diluting it until it is fleshly and it is carnal. They do that with marriage. They celebrate the exception of the law through divorce And so they justify themselves before men. And there is a real danger in self-justification. I remember watching an episode of the Waltons with my family. And this episode, there's, there's this great conflict between the father, John Walton, and his wife because he will not go to church and he will not be baptized. When he finally does go to church, there's an evangelist who yells at him and everything else, and he's totally put off by this. But the end of this episode ends with the narrator 
saying, My father continued to keep the Lord's day in his own way for the rest of his years, believing in God and enjoying him and his creation while hunting and fishing. I know that John Walton's not a real man in the sense of the television show, but it sounds familiar, doesn't it? I think we all know men like this, perhaps women as well, who would say, oh, but I'm communing with God through nature, like we're some sort of magical transcendentalists or something, right? We're getting close to God through, through communing, communing with Him through catching fish. Instead, he's justified himself and now his family justifies him as well. He's a good man. Isn't that what the Pharisees were saying? I'm not, I'm not that bad. We justify ourselves in the same way. We say, I'm not as bad as all those sinners over there. I mean, I may not be a saint, but I'm not as bad as all those sinners. Our pastor talked this morning about a middle ground. There's no such thing. There's no such thing. Justifying ourselves before men denies the simple truth of Christianity. Christ died to save sinners. If you are justified apart from Christ, then you are justified to a lie. You do not believe yourself to be a sinner. You lie to yourself and you believe this world, this day, this moment, this is all there is to live for. You lie to yourself and you believe that there is no final judgment of God. God isn't just. God doesn't require perfection and sinfulness. You can believe that. But that doesn't change the truth. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees. Does He rebuke you today for self-justification? Do you twist and change the law of God so that you can meet its requirements on your own? If you do, He will rebuke you at the final judgment. So instead of of justifying yourself before men or before God, instead of trying to to speak away or, or, or justify your own sin as not being that bad or not as bad as others, I would encourage you instead to run to Christ, to cling to Him, because Christ did die to save sinners. So ask God for forgiveness that is found only in Christ. Ask Him to make you perfect and sinless. Not that you'll never sin. Of course, we continue on striving against sin. But He will establish us as justified, sinless, as Christ is sinless. What a glorious thought. Ask God for the forgiveness found only in Christ because Christ died to save us sinners. Will you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, tonight we are struck by your truth that we so naturally, we so naturally seek to explain away our sin. Even before you, God, we can pray trying to explain away our own sin. 
Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit tonight would help us to confess these lies before you. Help us to see our sin as the truly repulsive, repulsive thing that it is before you. God, change our minds and our hearts toward our own sin, toward our own words and actions, towards our own thoughts. Please conform us to the image of your Son. Help us to trust fully, totally, in the Lord Jesus Christ. To the glory of Him who is our saving God, we pray this. Amen.